Let us return to 1 Timothy. Let us return to 1 Timothy this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And the title of this message this morning is Apostolic Doctrine. And we'll begin in verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Verse 4, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Verse 5, now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which... Some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk. Verse 7, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Our Father, we pray for your blessing upon the word of God read and preached and upon our hearing of it. We pray that you would be honored and glorified by it and that you would strengthen your church. Sanctify the saints, save sinners, and glorify your name. Rest upon me as I speak, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Last week we looked at the greeting of this letter as we entered into this epistle of Paul to Timothy. And we're moving this morning from the greeting of the letter that we looked at last week, verses 1 and 2, to now observing the content of this letter. We're moving into the body of the letter. Now notice what is interesting here is typically Paul in his letters will have a typical greeting like we saw in verses 1 and 2. And then he'll say something about the congregation or the individual. There'll be a kind of thanksgiving as we might say. But here we find Paul immediately launches into a charge to Timothy to guard the flock at Ephesus. He, he calls upon him to guard the flock at Ephesus by confronting and correcting false teachers that were among them. The fact that Paul quickly moves to this issue at hand, it reveals to us the urgency and the importance of this matter. So there's no opening pleasantries here. He moves right on in an urgent manner, right to business, as we might say. Now, if you're wondering what has taken place, because we, we first hear of Paul's encounter of the city of Ephesus back in the book of Acts, chapter 18. In fact, chapter 18, 19, and 20, we learn about uh, Paul's interaction with the city and the, what will later become the church at Ephesus. If you remember, the city of Ephesus is on the eastern side seaboard of what we know of, uh, as Asia Minor, or today of Turkey. It was a port city. It was known for um, its great pagan temple of Diana or Artemis. And Paul passes through in chapter 18. He briefly stops and speaks in the synagogue, if you remember. They want him to stay, but he's compelled to move on. But he comes back later. 
and continues. And we'll, we'll discuss maybe at some time in the future Paul's method of evangelism and, plant, and church planting. Notice how he, he, how he does this um, and where he goes to have opportunities to speak and to teach. But that will be for another occasion. But again, in the book of Acts, in chapters 18 through 20, we find the beginning of the establishment of the church at Ephesus. We're not given all the details, but we find Paul laboring in the synagogue and then later in the school or the hall of Tyrannus in chapter 19. And the teaching ministry of Paul, it will quickly take root. It will spread. A church is planted or established. But his teaching, his teaching, and is probably being conveyed by his listeners and by those that are being converted through their homes, wherever they are working, their labors, their vocations. It's spreading across the city, and it creates no small uproar in the city, especially among the city idol makers, if you remember. But the gospel advances. A church is established. And we know from the book of Acts, Paul labors there for three years. Can you just imagine that? Having Paul, having Paul in your midst as a church for three years to learn, to listen to his instruction. But in Acts chapter 20, in Acts chapter 20, we have the words which set in place and help us to understand the background of 1 Timothy, especially concerning the false teachers. If you look in your Bible in Acts chapter 20, if you'll turn over there, in Acts 20, in Acts 20, uh, we find in verse 17, it says from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called for the elders of the church. That's in verse 17 of Acts 20. He's calling for the elders of the church. And, and one of the things that's important here in this, what I'm about to read, we see that as he's speaking to church leadership, who use three different names to speak of church leadership, these titles speak uh, that are three names speak of their function and who they are uh, in the church at Ephesus. They're called elders. Some of you are familiar with this. This is where we get the word presbytery from. The presbyteros, the, the, the presbytery, the elders. And then in verse 25, in verse 25 of chapter 20, he says, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone, preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. And therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Verse 27 Notice this statement, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Now, we don't believe that Paul in that three years taught through the uh, all 66 books of the Bible. We don't think he's saying that because the Bible was still being formed like First Timothy, like we have here. But what he did instruct them in primarily from the Old Testament and maybe some 
thoughts that, of his own that would become uh, writings of the epistles and even some of the other apostles. But with apostolic doctrine, with apostolic doctrine, he was teaching them the full counsel of God. That is the general faith of the Christian faith of apostolic doctrine and the centrality of Christ in the Bible and the gospel. And so he taught to them the whole counsel of God. Verse 28, notice verse 28. Therefore, speaking to the elders, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. He does it again. That's the word episcopoi. It means to oversee. We get the word episcopalian from. You're starting to see certain church denominations are named after certain forms of church government. Presbytery, elder, Oversee, Episcopoi, Episcopalian, to oversee. And then he says, to shepherd the church. There we get the word pastor from, to feed. He uses all three words. So the elders are those men that are elders, leaders, spiritually mature. They're the men that oversee the life of the church, and they function in a shepherding way to feed and to shepherd the flock. To shepherd the church of God. Now notice this. Which he purchased with his own blood. Now verse 29. Verse 29. Look what he says. For I know this. That after my departure. Savage wolves. Will come in among you. Not sparing the flock. Among from also. Among yourselves. Men will rise up. Speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Verse 31. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. For this chapter is over, Paul will leave to go catch a ship and the elders are there with him. And we can see from his ministry there uh, the closeness that he had developed with the leadership there. And they cry and they hug him and they cry on his shoulders, the scripture says, as the apostle departs. But it's this prophetic word, as we might say, of Paul. For I know this that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He's comparing the church to God's flock, God's people. And so as there is the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, there are these under shepherds, the elders, and they are to guard and protect the flock. And he's saying that wolves will come in and they will not spare the flock. Verse 30, among, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. The way that they will devour the flock, the way that they will be savage to the flock and not sparing it is by false teaching. And the danger is here. It appears that what he's saying is not not that they will arise from the congregation in general or arise from around you in your setting that is of the city or in Asia Minor. But it appears he's saying from among from among yourselves, men will rise up. That is from among the eldership, 
Men will rise up speaking perverse things, false teachings, blasphemies concerning God and his truth. And so now we have this years later, probably if this if this event is taking place in Acts, we're reading here in the later 50s. Then about five years later, we're now at 1 Timothy around AD 62. So within five years, this has transpired. And now this prophetic word of Paul has come true. And the false teachers are threatening the life of the church at Ephesus. And that's the urgent matter. matter. Paul quickly dives right into it. And so there's a challenge here concerning false teachers. And there's a charge to Timothy as the disciple of the great apostle. This is, that Timothy is to defend the faith. Timothy is to guard the truth of apostolic doctrine. He is to protect the flock. He's to uphold the, the truth of God. And this word... Remember, this word is from what we would call the pastoral epistles. This not only applies to Timothy, but it would apply to the elders at Ephesus and all future generations. Remember, we talked about last week how we're seeing the generation, the, the baton pass from Paul to Timothy to each, proceed, uh, each next generation of ministers or elders in the church are to take to heart his words here and in the flock in general are to take these words to heart. And so there's a challenge of the false teachers here. Uh, this morning we'll try to look at verses 3 through 7, but this section will go all the way actually to verse 11. To verse 11. Verses 3 all the way to 11. But let's begin in verse 3. Verse 3. Here, here the apostle calls Timothy and every good minister of Jesus Christ and every faithful elder in the life of the church and then indirectly the people of God to confront false teachers. That's what he calls them to do. This is what he's calling Timothy to do. Confront the false teachers. That's my first point. When we speak of the challenge of false teachers and what we are to do in the life of the church, the first thing he calls us to do is when we hear a false teaching that's not apostolic doctrine, we are to confront the false teachers. Look at verse 3. Verse 3. I urge you, when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. That you, you, Timothy, may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. In verse 3, Paul challenges Timothy to confront the false teachers in Ephesus. And so Paul, and there's military language. You'll find this throughout the pastoral epistles. There's military language that is that is used uh, to speak of Timothy and his labors. Um, the elders maybe jokingly know how I have a tendency to do that. Uh, maybe part of that is growing up in a home where my father was a type of historian, always reading, always documentaries. 
always discussing uh, the wars. And I find myself at time, not only influenced from the New Testament, but from that kind of background, of using war terminology. Terminology. For instance, it's, it's, it's the desire of the eldership that by the beginning of June, Lord willing, by the beginning of June, that we are beginning to move back into, by that first Sunday, back to what we would call full church, back to the way that we used to do things before COVID. And so there'll be a number of things through May developing and unfolding. But also the first of, of June and that first week is D-Day. The celebration of D-Day, the remembering of D-Day. And so we've said, that's our D-Day. We get back to how church is supposed to be. Amen. Right? Our, our, our elders know that when we see momentum in the church, I think of Stonewall Jackson. And when you're on the enemy and you're chasing the enemy and you're defeating them, when you have momentum, what do you do? You keep the momentum going. You keep the pressure on the enemy. When we've been in conflict, our elders know. I'll say, hold the line. Hold the line. Don't give in. Hold the line. And we stand for the truth. We have language like that here. Military language. Paul, Paul is calling upon Timothy to remain at his assigned post, as we might say. In Ephesus. At his assigned post. And he's given a mission. That he's to carry out as the disciple, the faithful disciple, the true son in the faith of, of Paul. That you may remain in Ephesus. That you, Timothy, may charge some that they teach no other doctrine Again, military language in verse three, this language here that you may charge that word there charge. That's a military command. It's a military command. This word is a command that, that has the concept of a command given by a superior to a subordinate. So Paul is not only commanding Timothy to stay, but then Timothy is to charge the false teachers to cease, to desist of their teaching false doctrine. And so we have this command here. But Timothy was not to waver. He was not to waver. He was not to jettison the mission that had been assigned to him by his representative, that is, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Timothy is a good minister of Christ Jesus as a shepherd following the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. He is to confront the false teachers that are threatening the flock in the, the threatening the flock there at the church of Jesus Christ in Ephesus. Jesus himself warned of false teachers and prophets. And then we have the next generation of the apostles warning of the false prophets and teachers. And here we have now the next generation being warned and exhorted to stand against the false teachers. In Titus chapter 1, when we think of the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. In Titus, we have this, this same language here. Listen to this. In Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Titus 1, verse 9. 
Here is Paul, in this case, speaking to Titus. Holding fast, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught. That is, as Titus would appoint elders in the churches on the island of Crete, he was to appoint men that are holding fast the faithful word. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, that, this expression, the faithful word. But hold fast the faithful word as he's been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine. Sound doctrine, both, notice this, both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. Do you see that? You see, this is a responsibility of a faithful minister, of a good elder in the life of the church. Now, there's a, there's a, a phrase or a, a line that you've probably heard from John Calvin. And that, what I'm about to read, it comes from Calvin's commentary on Titus and his comment on Titus chapter 1 verse 9. And it's this. Listen to this. Speaking of Titus chapter 1 verse 9, Calvin comments and says... The pastor, quote, the pastor ought to have two voices. He ought to have two voices. One for gathering the sheep and another for warding off, driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both, end quote. So one of the tasks of a faithful pastor, a good, a good minister of Jesus Christ, is to, is to confront and correct false teachers. To confront and correct false teachers. Now, dealing with false teachers, Timothy's charge is to silence the false teachers. We see in verses 3 through 7 is what's taking place here. Timothy is to labor, to silence, and to stop the spread of this false teaching from spreading throughout the Ephesian church. So it's like a cancer. It's like a gangrene. It's like an infectious disease. It, and, and Paul wants to cut it off like a, a limb with gangrene. He wants to stop it. He wants to kill it from spreading across the entire congregation. For false doctrine, false doctrine can damn the soul. It's deadly and dangerous. You see, we're not, we are not only to believe God's word, but we are to believe the truth of God's word. It's not enough just to say, I believe. But what do you believe? We must believe the truth of God's word. And in this case, it's the truth of apostolic doctrine. Now, Paul was apparently with Timothy. When he departed, that's what it looks like there in verse 3. As I urged you, when I, when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. We have the idea that he may have been with him before he departed. And possibly, it seems, especially when we look at verse 18 through 20, that Paul had already begun the work of confronting and correcting he, he, he's not only confronting and correcting, but where there, there was apparent, apparent unrepentance by these teachers, by these elders, by these false teachers, notice this, 
Paul exercises the keys of the kingdom as an apostle. He exercises the keys of the kingdom as an apostle. Now you may be saying, what do you mean by that? There is word here of expulsion, church discipline, excommunication of two men. And many believe the two men we're about to look at may have been like the ringleaders, that they were the beginning of that, of this. And these two men had disciples and they had instructed, they had brought other men into their positions of error and they were propagating it. And Paul, before he left, he confronted those false teachers, expelled them from the church in the way of excommunication. And now Timothy's left behind and he's doing the, the mop up. He's doing the wrap up mission. He's making sure that the congregation itself is on board with apostolic doctrine that they understand and that if there are other men teaching it he will charge them to teach no other doctrine now notice this first timothy chapter 1 verse 18 verse 18 first timothy 1 verse 18 this charge i commit to you son timothy According to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may, and here's the language again, you may wage what? A good warfare. For the books over here say fight what? The good fight. You wage the good warfare. Verse 19, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. Verse 20, here they are. Of whom are Hymenius and Alexander? Hymenius and Alexander. And then look what he says. Whom I delivered to what? To Satan. That they may learn not to blaspheme. As we've said before, church discipline is more than just the concept of shunning, isn't it? These are strong words. To gather church with the elders, they work in concert together in the way of church discipline. And when that is carried out by the church body, that's Matthew chapter 18, 1 Corinthians 5. Now we see it here. What takes place is... They're ex, remember, like exit, out, cast out, cast out of the communion of the saints, cast out, away from communion, the, the, the means of grace, the promises of God, they're cast out of the covenant community, excommunicated. And they, they're, they're cast out from the safety and the refuge of Jacob's God. And they are cast out into the world. Whereas the God of this world, the prince of the power of the air, they're cast out into the kingdom of the devil and they're given over to him. He's delivered to Satan. They are, that they may learn not to blaspheme. And so it appears here, Paul has begun the work. He may have already, he may have already cast out the leaders of the church. And now he's leaving and asking Timothy to continue the work. Timothy's to confront false teachers that are left behind. And secondly, 
we find in verse 3 and then moving into verse 4, he not only confronts them, he charges them, but he's to correct the false teachers. Correct the false teachers. Verse 3, as I urge you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus, that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. Verse 4, nor give heed to fables in endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. He confronts them, and then he begins to correct them. Now, we do not know exactly what was all wrapped up in their false teaching. Paul says it's blasphemy. We see here it has something to do with fables and endless genealogies. Commentators have all kinds of different ideas, but all of them admit in the end, we don't know exactly, exactly what this was. Now, we, we do have this. I pointed this out in the, the, the first hour. Notice, uh, if you would turn over to chapter 6 in 1 Timothy. Chapter 6. In chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, and there is some, um, there's some um, language here. Chapter 6, verse 20. 1 Timothy, chapter 6, verse 20. O Timothy, guard, guard what was committed to your trust. Guard the deposit, some translations will have it. Avoiding, notice this, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called, what's the word there? Knowledge. Knowledge. You know what that Greek word is underneath? Gnosis. Gnosis. Now, why, what is full bore Gnosticism an early church heresy may have not fully been developed by this time it seems to be there in some capacity Gnosticism Gnosticism a denial of the, the Christ coming in the flesh maybe it's mixed in with some Jewish legalism but he says here what is falsely called knowledge. He may be telling us right here. It's a kind of Gnosticism, a false knowledge, which he says by professing it, verse 21, some have strayed concerning the faith. Maybe. We'll discuss that along the way. There's some other pointers in this letter that may point to that. But he's to correct them. He is to correct them to teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to these fables and endless genealogies. Now, 
What we have learned the last last few weeks, I've mentioned a couple words, and I mentioned how we put them in the bulletin from time to time as an insert. We, we sometimes will put in the insert, a insert that says, what we, why do we believe this? And it, it's to help the congregation learn. It's to help new folks learn certain things that we believe. And so what we believe is orthodoxy. You remember that? And that's derived from the word ortho, straight, doxy, straight doctrine, right doctrine. And then there's other times people say, well, why do you do that at Covenant? And that has to do with practice. And so we'll put in there orthopraxy. Why do we do that? Why do we practice, right practice, orthopraxy? Well, here we have a new word this morning. And if you notice there in verse 3 again, when he says, teach no other doctrine. You know what underneath that is? It is the Greek word, no other doctrine is heterodoxy. Heterodoxy. Hetero. Other. Other teaching. Other doctrine. Another teaching. A deviation from orthodoxy. So we always want to be in a place of orthodoxy, not heterodoxy, right? Not a, another teaching. A deviation from orthodoxy. Now... With that being said, as he's confronting that, we want us to begin to think about this. No other doctrine, not heterodoxy, but sound doctrine, apostolic doctrine, the established doctrine. Realize this. Understand this. Understand that there, there are really no new heresies. There's really not. They're just old heresies. Repackaged. Renamed. That's all they are. In, um, in chapter 4, look over at chapter 4, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. In chapter 4, verse 1, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, you've been with us, we know, when is later times? And it's now. It's everything on this side of the cross. Right? The coming of Jesus and this side of the cross, the apostles referred to as the last days, later times. You see this in the opening verses of the book of Hebrews. Now, if you believe that we are near the time of the second advent of Christ, you might say something like, we are in the last days of the last days. Maybe. Maybe. Again, that's for another time. But we are in the later days. We're in the last times. But notice what he says here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some would apart from the faith, the faith, definite article, the faith, giving heed to what? Deceiving spirits. Doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. That you, you, you want to talk about Gnosticism, verse 3, forbidding to marry, 
and command, commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. You get this language that created things that are, are evil, like Gnosticism would teach. But again, the point here is deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, would say, behind every idol is a what? A demon. Is a demon. If you want to know where now, sociologists, anthropologists would tell us otherwise. When they study men and, 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 and people groups, they would say that this is the natural evolution of men developing religions. But for Christianity, we would say that we're all the descendants of Adam and that men scattered upon the earth, that this development of false religions and idolatry is ultimately demonically inspired from the fallenness of their depravity, Romans 1, and inspired by the devil. Behind every idol is a devil, is a demon. And these are doctrines of demons. Years ago, there was a man that attended here. He's moved off since then. But he, uh, he, he for years, he, for years, he was in the name it and claim it health and wealth gospel churches. And the way he got converted... The way he was converted, when you talk to him, you say, how did you get converted? He says, they read the word of God in church. They were false teachers, but they read the word of God, and I heard the word of God. God, heard, God caused me to hear the word of God, and I was converted in spite of their false teaching. And I said, but how do people believe that? Because when you're a Christian, you see that, you hear that. It seems so obviously false. How do you believe that? And I remember he turned to me and says, brother, they don't call it doctrines of demons and deceiving spirits for nothing. Right? So, the devil is apparently not very creative. Because there's really no heresies. Just old ones, repackaged and renamed. He loves to attack those fundamental truths, in particular, the, the integrity of the Scriptures, the work of Christ, the person of Christ, that's where he'll fire his missiles, right? But then they just rename it, twist it, turn it, repackage it, right? That's all the false teachers do. So remember that. There's really no new heresies, just old heresies repackaged and renamed. And never forget this truth. When it comes to apostolic doctrine or false teaching, remember this. If it is true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. And if it's new, it's not true. Now watch this. The early church, and what I mean by not new, if it's true, there was... Very early in the church, very early in the primitive church, in the apostolic church, 
an established system of doctrine from the apostles of Jesus Christ. There was already in the early primitive church an established system of doctrine from the apostles of Jesus Christ. There in the New Testament, especially in Paul's writings, there is the reality of a system of doctrine that has been established and is being taught. The language that we'll find the apostle using. And we're going to see it again and again and again in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, it's even in Titus. It's in the New Testament, but especially in those pastoral epistles. We hear language like sound doctrine. That word can also be translated healthy doctrine. Versus what? Unsound, unhealthy doctrine. Wait a minute. Is the apostle saying that there's already an established system, a belief of sound doctrine? We hear language like, we read over it, but it's this definite article, the truth. The truth versus what? He'll say, the faith. The faith, not faith like personal belief and trust. Sometimes he'll use that word, faith, and that trusting in something. But he'll speak of definite article, the faith. That is, not the believing and trusting, but the content of faith where we do believe. You see that? The content of faith, like a statement of faith, a confession of faith. There's the faith. Other places he'll just say, the word. Because it's found in apostolic teaching. It's found in Colossians. It's found in Ephesians. It's found in Romans. It's found in 1 Timothy. It's the word. Other times he'll say the trust or the deposit that's been given. Like he'll say to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. Do you see this? Now watch this. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 10, Timothy is to confront and to correct those false teachers. They're not to teach that which is, verse, verse 3, contrary, in opposition. They're not to teach that which is a, a, another doctrine, heterodoctrine, heterodoxy. And verse 10, verse 10, notice verse 10. If you move down chapter 1, verse 10, he says, For fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers. And if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, there's sound doctrine. There's a system of doctrine that they believe, that they've embraced, that's been taught by Paul, and they were not to embrace and believe anything contrary to that. Over in chapter 2, verse 4, 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, there Paul says, who desires all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. In other places in the Bible, one of those verses that we highlight, that we really put forward in the life of our church to remind us of life in the early church, 
In Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42. In Acts, chapter 2, verse 42, it's speaking of the life of the early church. It says, and they continued steadfastly. And they continued steadfastly, that is their early church, in the apostles' what? Doctrine. They were steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. This is why when we confess in the Nicene Creed, an apostolic church. The apostolic church is built upon the apostolic teaching, Ephesians 2.20. So we stand upon it. That is the New Testament scriptures that we stand upon, that we embrace. It is apostolic doctrine, the apostles' doctrine. And Timothy, as a true son in the faith... Versus a false son, a false teacher. Timothy's a true son of the faith. You see that? He's, he's, and there's a play on words here, even in the introduction and these words of greeting where Timothy, where the readers and the Ephesians were to understand that, that as Timothy was left behind, the apostle leaves and Timothy's left behind to do this work, they were to understand his authority and place as one being set there at, to that post by the apostle Paul and Paul by his very words is saying, you can trust Timothy. I've set him there. I've placed him there. And he's not like the false teachers. He's a true son in the faith. You see that? He is one who is true other than that which is false. Again, this same kind of language. Again, back to Titus chapter 1 verse 9. Holding fast the faithful word as it has been taught, as it will say. And even in the book of Jude. In Jude chapter, or Jude, it's just one chapter. It's one book. So it doesn't have chapters. But Jude 3, Jude verse 3, it says this. To contend earnestly for the faith. The faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. There it is again. And we'll see in the new, in the epistles, this language of the teaching, the teaching. But again, it's this what Timothy is to guard what has been entrusted to him in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're running out of time here. Let me wrap things up. Here, and then we'll just pick right up where we've left off last week. But Timothy was to confront the false teachers and he was to correct them. And let me say this when he corrects them and when Paul corrected them, notice the language that we have here. 1 Timothy 4, let's read through these verses again. Beginning 4. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which, now notice this, which cause disputes rather than, rather than godly edification. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith, from which, verse 6, some have strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say, nor the things which they they affirm. Now it is said that that someone that would like a federal officer, like Secret Service, that would track, say, counterfeit money. One of the ways that they may know a counterfeit hundred dollar bill is by spending time at looking at a genuine hundred dollar bill. 
which I don't know how they do nowadays because it seems to be changing about every couple of years. But in any case, they know what a genuine $100 bill looks like. They know it, have looked at it, have studied it closely, that when they see a counterfeit $100 bill, a false $100 bill, they spot it rather quickly. They see deviations, deviations from an accurate one quickly by picking it up. While, while pastors, teachers, elders, the people of God are to be primarily, first and foremost, we are to ground ourselves in the truth of God's word and to know it, to know it, that when we hear false teaching, and have you ever been in a, I'll give you an example. Years ago, I was at what was called a Solo Deo Gloria conference in another state. And there was, I'm not even going to name his name. Uh, this man teaching, who was well known at that time. And he was teaching. And you know, you hear something and you just, a red flag goes up in your mind. Something just wasn't right. And then you'd hear it again. And there it goes again. Something just not right. But you couldn't put your finger on it. And not only at that conference were other well-known, reformed teachers. They were there. They were in that same place. I could tell they were, they were asking this individual all kinds of questions about some of the things that he had said. And they were trying to, like, ah, something's not right there. Well, we know now, 30 years later, that the teaching that that individual was pushing forward was called the New Perspective on Paul. It was in the very beginning days of it. Before everybody kind of knew the ins and outs of that teaching, it was, he was putting it forward. It was just enough that guys were going, that didn't sound right. That's not right. If we know the truth, if we're grounded in God's word thoroughly as we ought to be and constantly, that's what happens. When we hear that which is false, that which is an error, the red flags go up. We may not immediately, we may not immediately identify it, but we know something's not right there. Know what it is yet, but something's not right there. And we'll, we'll consider that the gracious work of the spirit, won't we? Who has put the word in our mind and hearts and souls. However, Paul and Timothy did know something about the false teachers. While we should be thoroughly grounded in the truth, we should be aware. And one of the things I do as a pastor is I try to stay aware of movements and things that are happening around us in our culture and within the church so that my radar's up in guarding and protecting the flock, discussing these things with my fellow elders so that we're not caught off guard. So I want to be aware of those things. While that is not the bulk of my study, I want to be aware of it. And Paul and Timothy knew something about this. Notice they begin to describe it, and, what's, and what they do is, notice this. If we could say Timothy was to charge and confront the false teachers, and then he was to correct the false teachers, what he does now in this correction, he contrasts. He would contrast 
the results in the end of the false teaching versus true teaching. True teaching versus false teaching. He will contrast the results of truth and error. Nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. That false teaching. Again, we don't know all what that is. We knew the Jews could, um, the, the Jews could get, there was all kinds of Jewish folklore, fables, uh, also the spreading throughout the ancient world. They could be caught up in genealogies. But he says the result is they cause disputes. Rather than unity, they cause division. Rather than, notice verse 4, rather than godly edification, rather than growing God and holiness and godliness, which is in the faith, this causes divisions. Verse 5, now if the pursuit of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith, there's true teaching. From which some, though, have strayed, like the false teachers, having a turned aside to idle talk, aimless talk, babbling talk, is what he's saying here. Useless talk. Desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. You see, disputes... These false teachings bring about disputes rather than godly edification. Verse 5, rather than love from a sincere heart and faith, it leads to idleness, to, to idle, useless, aimless talk. Verse 7, they don't understand the proper use of the law. That's a common error. Not understanding the proper use of the law. The right use of the law. Law gospel distinction. Not understanding the proper use of the law, but having understanding, but not having an understanding of the law rightly. That's the problem here. So he's contrasting truth and error here. We're reminded here, just in that little quick overview. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll touch it some more next week. Doctrine, apostolic teaching is not just for our heads to swell with knowledge. No. Yes, it enters the mind. It enters the mind. And we are to understand it. And we are to grow in understanding of it. But it is to settle in our souls and hearts. And it is to transform us and to renew us into Christ-likeness. Doctrine, right doctrine, is to lead to right living. Right? And right life. The holiness of life. Let us remember as God's people. For us... Any heterodoxy, any different doctrine, is anything that disagrees and contradicts what is written in the Bible. That's what we're saying. If we had to make it right to the right to the point, it's in contradiction to the Bible. And so, as God's people, this morning is. Our elders, I as a minister, future young men that may desire to the, the serve in the church in the future, in the church body as a whole, we are to know the Bible and its teaching if we are to grow in the image 
of God. As it's been said before, all that it's necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to what? To do nothing. Elders, my fellow elders, congregation, we need to be willing. We need to be willing to be strong, to confront and to correct false doctrine. We speak the truth in love. We're patient with one another. But let's speak the truth. Let's confront error and let's correct false teachers. J.C. Ryle says this, quote, What is, J.C. Ryle, what is the best safeguard against false teaching? Beyond all doubt, the regular study of the Word of God with prayer for the help and teaching of the Holy Spirit. The Bible was given, he says, to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, Psalm 119, 105. The man who reads it aright will never be allowed greatly to err. It is a neglect of the Bible which makes so many a prey to the first false teacher whom they hear. They would have us believe that they are not learned or do not pretend to have decided opinions. The plain truth is that they are lazy idle about reading the Bible and do not like the trouble of thinking for themselves. And then Ralph says, nothing supplies false prophets with followers so much as spiritual sloth under a cloak of humility. End quote. He didn't hold back anything there, did he? Ouch. As we said earlier, it will be this gospel that the false teachers Love and the devil himself love to fire their darts at. In verse 15, Paul will say, notice verse 15, this is a faithful saying. There it is again, a faithful saying. The teaching that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so this morning we are reminded that false doctrine leads us away from the truth and away from Christ. In this case, the law is involved. It is probably some kind of uh, like Galatian heresy that involved works righteousness, that obeying certain rules and regulations and abstaining from certain foods and certain things. One is meriting a right standing before God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we come this morning and move toward the table, we're reminded in the sign and symbol of the bread and the cup that our standing before God, our righteousness is that which has been imputed and we have received from the Lord Jesus Christ in the books of heaven because Christ, the Holy One, the obedient one, died and shed his blood for us. And by faith, we receive this gracious gift of God. And so this is the gospel. This is good news. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, you've not embraced Christ by faith, come to him this morning, repenting of your sin, turning to Christ by faith, the God-man who died on the cross. Receive the work of Jesus as a gracious gift. And for God's people, if you are with us this morning and you are a believer in Christ, 
you're a believer in Christ and you've been baptized in the name of the triune God and you are not under the discipline of a local church somewhere, we invite you to come to the table. That as God's people, we commune together. We eat of this bread. We drink of this cup. If you're not a Christian, if you have not embraced Christ as he's offered to you in the gospel, you have not been baptized in the name of the triune God, we ask that you not partake of the elements. This is the covenant meal for God's people. But we pray that you would stay and you would observe with the eye and hear with the, your ears the truth concerning the table. And our desire is that it would reveal and speak more of Christ to you. Let us pray.